Hi everyone, my name is Thiago, I am a graduate student at Princeton University and I'm your host. And my name is Senna and I'm a podcast editor at The Prince. Before beginning the episode, we have an exciting announcement to make. We're expanding and rebranding our podcast to Brains, Black Holes and Beyond. It's still going to be a partnership between the Princeton Insights and the Daily Princetonian, but soon we should get some episodes with new members from the Daily Princetonian and have episodes in other formats. This episode specifically is still derived from the Insights, a newsletter written by Princeton undergrads, grad students, and postdocs. We write about some of the most exciting research being conducted here at Princeton in the form of short, fun, and easy-to-read reviews from all sorts of fields in science. Feel free to check out our website at insights.princeton.edu. Now, let's get back to today's episode, because it's going to be really cool. We're going to talk today about Jupiter and its auroras, just like here on Earth, we have the northern lines. And maybe even more exciting, we're talking about it with Dr. James Zalay. Jamie received his bachelor's from James Madison University and his master's and PhD from the University of Colorado Boulder. During this time, he collaborated with NASA in many experiments. He has worked with interstellar dust, with data collected from the moon, from Pluto, from Jupiter, and if I'm not mistaken, he soon should work with data from the sun. So yeah, that's mind-blowing to me. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation, Jamie. Yeah, thank you for having me. Awesome. Mm, let me start asking a little bit more about how it all started for you. If I were to bet, I would say that young Jamie has always been a fan of the space and maybe watched or read some Carl Sagan, Neil deGrasse Tyson, is that true? <laughs> how did you get into that field? I was definitely always a fan of space, like like many. Um, but it, it it would have to be my uh, my both a combination of a very excellent high school teacher for physics that got me uh, interested in academics in general and physics, and then I had a couple very great professors in college and uh, a family friend that worked in the industry that that opened the door into space science for me. So awesome. kind of a lot of little course corrections from many, uh, many people I'm very thankful for along the way. Oh, nice. Could you tell us briefly about what you do and how you ended up here in Princeton? Sure. So I'm a, I'm a permanent research scholar here at, at Princeton. I've been here five years and I research uh, dust, part of charged particles, neutral particles, pretty much any, any kind of particles in space uh, over a wide range of phenomena as far as, as you mentioned, very close to the sun with Parker Solar Probe, uh, impacts and the ejecta processes at the moon and other airless bodies, all the way out to dust phenomena past Pluto. And then I'm also very interested in a litany of plasma uh, and auroral phenomenon at Jupiter. Right now we have the Juno spacecraft in a polar orbit uh, currently taking all kinds of very interesting revolutionary measurements. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, so we're going to talk more about that. But before we do, so you mentioned that you're working with Jupiter. A really cool fact I know about Jupiter is that it provided Galileo some of the earliest and maybe most definitive evidence against geocentrism, the idea that everything orbits around the Earth, because Galileo found moons orbiting around Jupiter and not the Earth. Maybe I should even record a separate episode just about that. <laughs> Could you tell us a bit more about Jupiter and its moons? Yeah, so Jupiter is really interesting in that it's almost its own solar system in a sense. It, uh, it was Jupiter was in some aspects a failed star. If it would have been something like a hundred times bigger, it could have been a star. Uh, and it has something like over seventy moons of its of itself in, in a very complex stance in orbital mechanics, uh, 
four of them are very much their own worlds. You have the, they're called the Galilean satellites, that, that uh, Io, Europa, uh, Ganymede, and Callisto in order of increasing distance. And each one of them is, is again, it's its own world. The, the innermost few may have more water than Earth and are a potential candidate for habitability. And, and there are multiple very large-scale missions that are at and plan to go to these various bodies. So it's, it's a target of extreme interest for both NASA and, and the European Space Agency and the, the world as a whole scientifically. That's very cool. So that's an example of the impact of astronomy society, which is the potential habitability of the planets. I mentioned before how that research changed our philosophical beliefs in terms of heliocentrism and geocentrism. Do you have other examples that astronomy research can be important for society? So, so habitability is a, is a very interesting, uh, again, topic of great interest right now. Uh, that's, that's certainly of interest to the broader community because it's the, one of the biggest questions that NASA can seek to answer. Are we alone in the universe? Is there, is there other life? Um, and, and Jupiter specifically and Saturn, both of them, they, they had a paradigm shift in the way we think about it. Uh, it used to be that we thought uh, life could potentially only exist in a region where liquid water could exist on the outside of a planetary surface. So Earth is in this region. It has to do with the distance you are from the star and the surface temperature. Uh, but that, that paradigm changed when we realized that you could actually have liquid water oceans underneath icy shells, and there could be enough heat to keep them liquid. And so instead of just looking in this very specific region, all of a sudden the space of potential habitability uh, really opened up. And it, and it changed how, how certainly NASA looked at exploration to, to address these issues. Now we can go to the moons of Jupiter and Saturn and potentially search for this. And it's conceivable even Pluto, as cold and far wow. as it is, has a liquid water ocean and maybe a potential uh, source for habitability. Whoa, <laughs> imagine living in Pluto. Um, you've been mentioning NASA a bunch. You've been working with data that comes from this NASA missions, not only from Jupiter, but also the moon, Pluto, right? That's fascinating. Uh, to what degree is your involvement with these missions and how does it work in general to have these collaborations with NASA? Is that something that other Princeton undergrads and grad students could get involved with? Yes, uh, so, so it's... There's a lot of opportunities for involvement. I'm, I'm actually working with a student, Wolf, in, in uh, Astro right now, and I, I worked with another student, Luke, who graduated from physics um, last year, and, and have been doing undergraduate research product uh, projects with me, and, and they both have been doing really excellent uh, work that has led to uh, publications and peer-reviewed journals. And so even at an undergraduate level, it's uh, certainly accessible. Um, and... In terms of graduate school, the way the involvement with NASA works when you're in science, typically you work on specific projects. Those are usually government funded, especially if it's in physics, space science. And so, for example, when I went to school, that was uh, entirely funded by NASA grants. And, and so that actually was able to put me all the way through grad school. And that's a very common setup. And so if you're interested in working in space science, the nice thing about grad school is it's, it's uh, not only is it covered, but uh, you actually have a, a small stipend that you can live with. Oh, cool. What about you specifically? How are you involved with NASA? 
Uh, so I've been, as you mentioned, I've, I'm involved in a number of uh, robotic NASA missions. Uh, very coarsely, NASA can be split into the human and the robotic side. I'm on the robotic side where we send uh, robotic spacecraft to various locations to answer specific science goals in a way that's just not possible with, with humans. Uh, I, I, one of the exciting future projects is, is led out of uh, Princeton, actually. There's the mission called IMAP, the Interstellar Mapping and Acceleration Probe. That's led by uh, Professor Dave McComas out of Astro, and that's led out of Princeton. Um, and I am a co-investigator for that, on, and I work on the, uh, one of the 10 instruments, which is called the Interstellar Dust Experiment, where material from interstellar space is actually get all the way is able to get all the way into one AU near Earth where the spacecraft will be and we're going to sense it and in some sense taste it see what composition it has and and how it might have evolved and understand our place in the interstellar medium with that well I'm looking forward to this it seems really exciting so you're sending space probes right for Jupiter specifically you sent Juno it left Earth on 2011 and I think arrived there in 2016. What is the process? What happens between the start of the data collection there and the publication of a paper? Or for this upcoming project you mentioned about dust, what is the timeline for it roughly and how are you involved in it? Yeah, it's, it can be a very long road uh, to get anything to space, not just because it takes a very long time to get there, like you just <laughs> mentioned with Jupiter. For example, Pluto, it took almost a decade from launch <laughs> to get there. Uh, and and, and that, those, any mission in space that's not at Earth is, is pretty tough just uh, communications-wise, because Pluto, for example, the one-way communication of light time was four and a half hours, and that's with speeds that were significantly less than dial-up, so it takes a very long time to communicate. Um, the, the process, though, by which you get a spacecraft into space involves a proposal to NASA with a proposal team that takes a considerable effort to put together. For example, IMAP had, had dozens of scientists, and, and now we're at the scale of hundreds of people being involved in building uh, the mission, the instruments, the spacecraft. One of the instruments is being built also at Princeton as well, uh, a solar wind monitor, a solar wind analyzer. In Princeton, like in the physics department? In the astrophysics, astrophysical sciences department. We, our, our team uh, actually stood up, built a lab from scratch, and are building a space instrument from scratch, essentially, in the last two years. It's been an incredible effort. Do you collaborate with like the engineering departments? We do have collaborations with the engineering department, and we also have a lot of very talented engineers that work in our group okay. as well, and science that all, that all lead this effort. Or, uh, there's yeah, a number of, of talented people working on this. What about afterwards? I believe that the initial plan had Juno collecting data until 2018. Yet now it seems that this deadline was extended to until 2025. Why do we have these deadlines and what happens to Juno after 2025, assuming the mission is not extended again? Like, uh, there are often a little, little bits of a dramatic flair that occur with, with different missions in space. Juno had an, had an issue with its propulsion system. It was originally supposed to uh, pump down into very short period orbits, but because there was a risk when they discovered after they got to Jupiter, they didn't want to risk firing the thrusters and putting it in, in if you will, a, a wacky orbit that we couldn't do much with. So they elected to stay in, in these 51-day orbits. And 
to do the same number of orbits we had originally planned. I think it was 33 in the normal, the prime mission, uh, 32. Um, that now took three times longer, so already that extended the mission. And what's really neat is is when you've... That, that occurred, that's already done, the, the primary mission, the core mission. And when you have an asset in space with a lot of scientific instruments, often... NASA will ask the team, please uh, put together an idea on what we might do after that. And, and we did that with Juno. And we, uh, a lot of it focused on, on moon flybys. We, we were actually able to fly by Ganymede. We just flew by Europa for the first time in 20 years, in over 20 years, uh, in September. Something I'm actively working on right now. And so we were able to pivot and do more dangerous things with it that we couldn't do. The radiation environment is, is extreme at Jupiter, and we're, we're actually experiencing more and more dose than we ever did before uh, as we pump into these very now close to Jupiter orbits. And so it's really exciting. We're going to hopefully fly by Io, the, the moon that has volcanoes that are constantly spewing material out into space uh, next year, and, and, and that's going to be really exciting too. So we should be expecting some space volcano photos in the news next year? In a year, and who knows, we might uh, fly through the material and be able to also sense it. There's a, a, a slew of instruments on, on Juno. One of them I work on that was, that was again, built out of, out of this group led by uh, Professor McComas uh, that is an ion composition analyzer called Jade, and it's able to determine the composition of the material, the charge material that you that hits the, hits the sensors, hits the spacecraft, and there's all kinds of interesting, valuable information looking for oxygen, for example, or sulfur that's come out of Io, and, and it gives us... We've never had that capability at Jupiter in this way, and so it's a really exciting time to be probing all these new regions. You mentioned that some of these probes will be taking photos, I think, but you also mentioned Jade. What are the things that you collected? What is the data from Juno that you're using? So I primarily focus on data from Jade, which is the Jovian Auroral Distributions Experiment. And that is what's called a, a time of flight uh, mass spectrometer. And it, and it looks at plasma, so charged charge particles uh, in a certain speed range that, that are detected by this instrument, we can uh, determine their composition by this technique called time-of-flight mass spectrometry, which it, in it, the way that we do it, the, the basic mechanism is that there's a, perhaps a bunch of different species of molecules that are charged, or atoms, and they each have different masses, different weights. For example, hydrogen is very light and oxygen is very heavy. And if you put them all through the same field, uh, the lighter ones go fast and the, the heavier ones go slower, and by that speed, we're able to determine what the mass is. And, and so it allows us to separate the different compositions of, of charged particles in Jupiter's very intense charged particle environment uh, and then learn about the origins and the evolution of, of this material. Uh, Jupiter, for example, kicks out material into its local space, but actually Io, the volcanic moon, is the dominant producer of material in the Jovian surrounding region. We call it a magnetosphere, which is the kind of magnetic area of influence around Jupiter. And, and Jupiter is very unique in that Io is just spewing out so much material that it plumps up this magnetic environment. And now we can measure the composition of that, for example. And then Europa, which does not spew out material at the same amount, Io is like a ton per second, which is incredible. 
but Europa probably kicks out uh, a, a, a few orders of magnitude less than that, but of water material, oxygen and molecular hydrogen. And, and that's something that if we can probe that and understand that, we can understand the evolution of its icy surface and how that's evolving, how it's oxygenated. And a lot of interesting physics we can probe with, with the composition of ions there. So the, um, when you're saying that you measure the composition of the, the samples, is that something that is going through the probe, going through Juno? We, the way that our instrument works is it's called a top hat electrostatic analyzer. And, and it, it essentially has a, it has a 270 degree field of view and I, I, it has a, uh, an opening and these, this material that's charged, if it makes it to the opening, then it has to curve around uh, a, a path and we can, we can set that the, there, there's a certain way that we can select which particles are able to make it through this curved path. And, and that's how we look for different speeds. And so ions that make it through the path within the instrument then hit a few different, they hit a carbon foil and they hit some internal workings of the instrument. And that's able to be turned into electrical signals, which we can then analyze and, and understand what hit us, how fast, what composition mm -hmm. and so forth. So not only the composition, but you can also measure the magnetic field you mentioned? So that is done by a different instrument. We have a okay. magnetometer uh, on Juno as well. And that it gives us uh, instantaneous magnetic field measurements. And, th and those are very interesting because charged particles uh, in any environment typically organize themselves by the magnetic field. They kind of get stuck on them, if, they, if you will. If you could imagine those, the magnets and you drop some bar filings, the metal filings on it, it makes that kind of circular shapes around it around the bar magnet uh, that's mimicking in some way where the particles get trapped in, in certain ways. And so understanding the magnetic field with the charged particles is, is really crucial. Nice. I understand that this magnetic field is related somehow to the polar lights and that Jupiter has one of the biggest or brightest ones. Is that something we can actually see like from a normal telescope here from Earth? The, it is true that Jupiter's aurora, uh, which are the emissions that occur uh, due to charged particles hitting its, its atmosphere, uh, are the most intense in the solar system. And that's because Jupiter is the most intense in, in almost every way. It's the fastest spinner, the biggest planet, all, all these uh, superlatives, it, it usually wins them all. Um, and so the way aurora work are, like I mentioned, charged particles get stuck on these field lines. And typically, Jupiter and Earth, to some extent, they have a, a magnetic field which is oriented so that the poles are roughly in the north and the south. There's some offsets involved, but they're roughly oriented in that way. And so the magnetic field lines, uh, a, a construct we use to visualize this, they kind of shoot out from the top and the bottom, almost like hair sticking up from the top and the bottom. And the charged particles would get stuck on those lines. And when electrons, for example, are traveling on those lines and they hit an atmosphere, they hit molecules, uh, they can excite them and that emits light. And so that's what we are able to observe and that's why they're typically in the north and the south because that's where the magnetic field lines come out from. Uh, same, with, same with Earth. Uh, we're able to observe that remotely. Uh, Hubble has been monitoring it in ultraviolet light 
Um, it, it, it emits in, in visible light, the light that we can see with our eyes, uh, but it, it's very intense in ultraviolet, just a little outside the spectrum that humans can, can see. But we have cameras that can look at them and, and, and really resolve uh, these measurements. It also emits in infrared, a, a cooler uh, spectrum like heat uh, that also emits that. Uh, and we can, we can observe that with Juno as well. We actually have visible ultraviolet and infrared cameras all on, on Juno. And what's neat is with Juno, for the first time, we fly through these magnetic field structures that hold the particles so we can measure the magnetic field we can measure the rain that's about to rain down on the atmosphere and understand how that works then we can take pictures once it hits the atmosphere and it makes all this light emission and so we can link all these very interesting fundamental processes that all have to occur this complex dance to make aurora we can measure essentially all of the phenomenon that are producing it at the same time and location and, and so it's been revolutionizing under our understanding about how the aurora work at Jupiter. Wow. You mentioned that these charged particles are somehow responsible for the auroras. And Jupiter has a really strong aurora, so Jupiter must have a lot of these charged particles. And you mentioned also that a lot of it comes from Io, I think. But in your paper, you're investigating some other sources that you're just describing, right? Uh, so Jupiter's environment is dominated by material that's released from Io. About 90% in number of particles uh, are that that are there from Io, and, and Io is is has a, it's mostly kicking out and releasing uh, sulfur and oxygen, and so that's what we is the dominant constituent in the magnetosphere, this magnetic environment around Jupiter. But we've also observed by, by number about 10% of the charged material is protons, uh, charged hydrogen. And that cannot come from Io. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a dominant source of that. And, and so there's been a, a bit of an open question on, on where that material came from. Uh, there's, there's three, there were three hypotheses. Um, one of them is the solar wind. So the, the sun continuously uh, kicks out uh, material that, that is released and, and shot, accelerated near the sun and, and moves radially outward. Uh, and, and that's dominated by protons. That's partly what causes Earth's auroras, right? So the interaction of that material with the Earth uh, is, is responsible for, for much of our aurora. The, the Earth works a little differently than Jupiter because it's, it's kind of driven more by changes in the solar wind. And there's this complex cycle called the Dungy cycle where uh, the Earth's magnetosphere, this magnetic environment, kind of uh, snaps closed and open again, and, and uh, that process can generate aurora. Um, at Jupiter, it's more complex because the material from Io has inflated its magnetic environment so much that it's very difficult for the, the solar wind, the, the material from the sun, to actually access inside close to Jupiter because it's been so inflated. And so even though there's a lot of protons that are hitting that magnetosphere, it's hard for them to get in to the magnetosphere. Um, the other uh, possibility is Europa or the icy moons. They are dominantly water on the outside. Water is H2O. So there are protons there that could be broken up uh, and then released into the environment. But that one's tough because it's you'd have to break up so much ice and release it as protons that it's just not realistic given the rates that we think that ice is broken up. 
And and the last source was Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter could it has uh, hydrogen and helium and, and many other species in its in its atmosphere. And if you're able to heat that and charge it and kick it out, then that could be a source of of protons. Uh, and the issue is that we that would be predominantly kicked out near the polar regions, not near the equatorial regions where we visited with spacecraft before, and we've never gotten super close to Jupiter. Um, and so Juno was uh, uniquely posed to search for these the potential of Jupiter, providing this missing source of material protons to the magnetosphere. And we flew by very, very close, within a, a, a few hundredths of a planetary radii uh, from its atmosphere. So it is very, very close. And uh, we were able to systematically observe uh, protons being scooped out from its uh its ionosphere, its atmosphere, uh, and and it was in amounts that are are enough to explain what what we uh, what we observe. Okay, so you mentioned planetary radii. Is that like the size of the planet? Yeah. So if Jupiter Jupiter's radius is one, we're we're flying by at like one point oh four, for example. So they were point zero four or four percent of the the radius of Jupiter above Jupiter's atmosphere, if you will. So we're we're skimming skimming the atmosphere. We fly super close. Is there is there like an analogy to Earth? So like maybe higher than planes, um, less high than the moon. Higher than planes, significantly closer than the moon. Okay. Um, uh, closer than than by radii analogy, closer than than many uh, of the satellites that that we have orbiting. Cool, yeah. And so, what was exactly that you reported in your paper? You reported the existence of these protons that are living from Jupiter. Yeah, we were able to for the first time actually directly observe this process. It had, it had been proposed as one of the explanations, but in a theoretical capacity and and not with uh, with data because we had never flown to the regions that would be shooting out this material. And and we found that uh, when we flew by, Jupiter has a main auroral oval, we call it, and there's this kind of oval circular pattern of auroral emissions around the north and the south poles, and when we were near those, we found that in addition to all of the aurora particles that are shooting down towards Jupiter creating that oval, there was also another phenomenon that's likely related uh, that's actually able to scoop back up part of its atmosphere and it's the charged atmosphere and shoot it away from Jupiter. And and so we statistically, I mean, we, we, we flew by uh, at the time of that paper, I think 26 times, maybe or 30 times, uh, we flew by uh, Jupiter's atmosphere and, and saw it essentially every single time, at least in the south. And so it was a systematic phenomena that's, that's occurring at Jupiter that had not been observed previously. Awesome. Uh, that's really cool. Congratulations about this, uh, this findings. That's very exciting. I don't know how much this related to your projects, but as I was studying about Jupiter, um, there was something that made me very curious. Why do some people expect that there is a cloud of ice water in Jupiter, even though it was never observed? And what does a cloud of ice water does it, does it even mean? So that's a good question. I, I don't know how to directly answer that. There, there, 
the existence of water and the, the ratio of water with respect to other elements is always of interest. Um, there's the cloud structures uh, are also Jupiter is such an intense environment that you can get, you know, here, for example, on Earth, our clouds are, are water vapor and 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 that's just due to the, the composition of our atmosphere and the local pressure and temperature. At, at Jupiter, you can actually get clouds made of all kinds of other interesting combinations of materials. Uh, and, and that's something that we can try to probe remotely. Um, we have some imagers that can probe the depth of, of those cloud structures and, and uh, try to understand the flow and the, and the composition of that material. And, and it's just such an extreme environment. It's like a laboratory to study how uh, atmospheric dynamic works and also understand the origins of, and evolution of Jupiter. Interesting. Okay, so to wrap up and look forward, um, you mentioned a lot of projects, the Europa Volcanoes, the interstellar dust, the solar probe. So like, what research projects you're most excited about right now? Very difficult, probably the most difficult question to answer because <laughs> they're all exciting in, in very different ways. Um, I would have to say that right now, uh, there's a number, I, I could maybe give you three short answers. <laughs> um, I'm actively working on uh, the Europa flyby data. We, we just flew by uh, Europa uh, for the first time in over 20 years since the Galileo mission visited it and for the absolute first time with composition measurements. We, we've never before been able to determine locally, in situ, like right in in that environment with a spacecraft, what the composition is. And, and so we flew by and we observed all this interesting composition that we had never seen before. And it it's all a consequence of the breakup of, of water ice on Europa's surface. And it might give us clues as to how much oxygen is building up in the, in the ice and, and uh, and how much uh, that might be able to oxygenate a liquid water ocean and how a plasma interacts with an icy surface. There's all kinds of interesting phenomena. So I'm very excited about that. Um, I'm also very excited about the IMAT mission and uh, its suite of 10 instruments. I, I work mostly on the dust instrument, but it's going to image our, our heliosphere uh, in a way that we've never been able to do before, building on the success of the IVEX mission, which also images our heliosphere. And so that's that's really promising and, and exciting, and I'm thrilled to be a part of that. Um, and finally, Parker. Parker Solar Probe is the closest thing we've ever flown to the sun, and it keeps pumping down, and, and I'm working on the, the dust impacts to the spacecraft and probably one of the most intense, dusty environments we've ever been to with a spacecraft. We're constantly getting barraged and sandblasted, and, and that helps us understand the evolution of the zodiacal cloud, which is the largest one of the largest structures in our solar system. It's essentially a dust disk across the entire solar system, and we get to probe the most intense part of it, where most of that material erodes and and shoots away, never to come back. So I would I would say those three projects and many more. Yeah, that's really exciting. Uh, actually, I have another personal question: um, What happens with these probes when they are the commission, like the solar probe, uh, like, do they go back or do they just hang there? It depends on the mission and the location. Um, things that are around bodies that would not potentially be a candidate for habitability have different requirements. 
Um, when NASA sends spacecraft near uh, to Jupiter, it has to make sure it won't hit uh, Europa, for example, and potentially contaminate it. If there are little critters on the spacecraft, even though we clean it very well and it's been baked in space, we still don't want to accidentally <laughs> seed life somewhere else or contaminate any measurements of future life. So you have to be clever about how you dispose of a spacecraft. And, and uh, so Juno will not go on forever. Eventually it will have to uh, uh, be deorbited. Um, they, I worked on Laddie, for example, at the moon. Um, that was a very short mission, uh, the Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environment Explorer. And that was uh, at the end of the mission, they basically just crashed it into the moon. It's in this very small orbit, and the moon's gravity is lumpy, and you you just let it go, and it it, it hits the surface, and the moon is not as uh, it's not as much of a risk for uh, life contamination. Parker Solar Probe will hopefully go on for a decade or or more, um, as as long as the the health and safety of the spacecraft will allow us to continue. Uh, there's no getting these back, though. None of them can come back. Uh, uh, those are very the the missions that we send a little piece of the spacecraft back are are typically they're called sample return missions and they're very specifically designed to do that because the the energy and the orbital mechanics are, are very tough for that so mm -hmm. they'll all be out there the 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 like Pluto the New Horizons mission that flew by Pluto it blasted past and it's going to leave our solar system and never come back just like the Voyagers and the Pioneer missions <laughs> nice well. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun talking to you and learning more about your research. I hope the listeners were also able to learn a lot and that you enjoyed the experience. Yeah, thanks for having me. This new episode of Be Cubed was hosted by Tiago Terravarela, sound engineered by me, and produced under the 146th Managing Board of the Prince. To learn more about Dr. Zalay's research, visit the Insights article in the link in the description. From the Prince, my name is Senna Eldabash. Have a great rest of your day.